0: Welcome back to Investigate Joe Rogan, today I will be looking at episode 1543 with Brian Marescu and Graham Hancock. There were many things said in this episode, a lot of the smaller details were true, verifiably true, but most of the big picture stuff is questionable at best and pure nonsense at worst. For instance, Rogan says there's a lot of evidence that the Salem witch trials were caused by ergot, a mold that can cause you to hallucinate. In reality, there is no actual evidence. It's just a theory. We don't have any ergot-infested breadcrumbs from the ye olden days. And there are good reasons to think that this theory is wrong as well. Convulsive ergotism, which is what Linda R. Caporeal The creator of this theory, says the accusing girls had. It really only happens in populations that lack vitamin A, and the people of Salem had lots of access to dairy and fish since they were by a port, so there's no reason to think that they were vitamin A deficient. Also, if it was ergot that caused all of this, why were only these girls infected? Everyone would have been eating the same infected grain, right? At the very least, other members of their families would have been infected, because surely they would have been eating the same bread, right? Typically when there's ergod outbreaks in history, tons of people get it, not a couple kids. Court records also show no signs of vomiting, diarrhea, or livid skin, all of which are standard ergod symptoms. The sorts of things that the girls claim they saw also aren't really consistent with ergot. They saw specific real people from their village, not weird perceptual distortions, which is what you'll experience uh, if you're on ergot. The better theory is that they were just faking it. You can tell from the records that as the trial progresses, the girls slowly change their symptoms and their stories to fit what the puritanical idea of witches was at the time, they would also react to things in the courtroom, such as they would start screaming and convulsing when the accused person moved and things like that. If they were genuinely on ergot and really seeing things, they they wouldn't be able to time it. They would just, you know, randomly start vomiting and going to horrible convulsions during the trial or something like that. They wouldn't be able to pick their spots so perfectly to get people in trouble. A bit later, this is another smaller thing from the episode, Brian says the Rit Vida is the oldest Western literature. It's not really Western, so I I think he misspoke or something, but either way, actually... The instructions of Shrupak and Kesh Temple Hymn are thought to be the oldest literature ever. They are from 2600 BC, which is pretty old, that's like boomer times. And the instructions of Shrupak has lots of good advice, such as, quote, you should not locate a field on a road, and you should not play around with a married young woman. The slander could be serious. This is classic, timeless advice. Keshe Temple hymn is just some, like, myth stuff. Doesn't have cool field and sex advice, so I won't talk about it. Also around this time, Rogan briefly mentions that MDMA can cure PTSD and Ibogaine can cure opioid addictions. I talked about this in my episode on Ben Westhoff, but that was forever ago. These are far from confirmed. Whenever Rogan brings them up, he pretty much says that they're confirmed miracle cures. But in reality, the scientific jury is still out on these things. They might work, but they also might not work. It's just not really known at this time. After a while, they do start to get into the big ideas from his book. And the sort of big idea on the Greeks that the mysteries of... Eleusis' uh, adherents were doing drugs. It seems plausible to me, honestly. I don't really have a problem with that. But some of the things he uses to support this are questionable. For instance, he says Eleusis, or the Mysteries of Eleusis, was the foundation of all Greek society. And his argument for this is simply that when Rome was destroying the Mysteries of Eleusis, The followers told them that if they destroyed it, Greek civilization and the whole world would fall apart. Well, in my opinion, that's not really an argument for it actually being the foundation of all Greek society. Think about it this way. If you asked certain Christians today in America what would happen if you destroyed the church and got rid of all churches, they would some of the, Some of them would probably say, well, America will fall apart, it'll collapse. But Brian probably wouldn't believe them, would he? He would not take this as serious evidence that America would collapse. So I don't see why we should take the word of these random Greek people as evidence that the Eleusis was seriously the foundation of everything. I think that's sort of distorting how important it actually was. Around this same time, uh, Rogan says the books The Dead Sea Scrolls and the Christian Myth and The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross were bought out by the Catholic Church to stop people from reading them. I think he seems to imply that the Catholic Church intentionally bought every copy (laughs) so that, you know, people went to the bookstores and they went to the shelf where the sacred mushroom would be and there was nothing, oh no. And apparently these books are so silly that not even Brian can get on board with them. He says they're just word games. But really, there, there is no evidence that the Catholic Church bought every copy. This is just an internet conspiracy theory. Now on to something much more serious than the ancient Greeks. Much more important. The three of them all agree that Santa Claus lore comes from magic mushrooms, Specifically, Amanita Muscaria. Now, not everyone is on board with this idea. Ronald Hutton, a history professor at the University of Bristol, who I found talking about this in an article, has this to say about the idea. Quote, If you look at the evidence of Siberian shamanism, which I've done, you find that shamans didn't travel by sleigh, didn't usually deal with reindeer spirits, very rarely took mushrooms to get trances, and didn't have red and white clothes. So if this is true, that pretty much shoots down everything they have to say about Santa Claus lore being inspired by psychedelic mushrooms. Now this guy might be going too far in the opposite direction. There are real historians other than Brian and Graham Hancock, who will argue that Santa Claus was influenced by mushrooms. However, Brian and Graham Hancock never once mention St. Nicholas, the actual human being who really existed, upon which everyone agrees that Santa Claus is based. Santa Claus, well, modern Santa Claus, is a combination of St. Nicholas, the actual guy, and Father Christmas, who is an English folk character from the olden days. And the things that they attribute to mushrooms have in my opinion, more likely explanations in St. Nicholas. For instance, Santa could wear red because of magic mushrooms in Siberia, or it could be because St. Nicholas wore red in real life. Just look at any of the icons of him. So it's possible that some parts of Santa lore do have roots in mushrooms, but they, they overblow the whole influence they basically say that like Santa is entirely based on drugs, which is just not true. Also, a quick sidebar for any of you guys who play Melee. Isn't it suspicious that the player from back in the day who used Fly Amanita as his gamer tag played ice climbers who wear fur-trimmed coats just like Santa? Think about it. Think about that. But eventually they do get off of santa claus and on to less important topics uh, like this guy's book and the big premise of this guy's book is that the early christian church used psychedelic wine for the eucharist also known as communion the only evidence he uses from the actual new testament to support his theory really the closest thing he has to evidence at all, is a few verses from 1 Corinthians, which is a letter that St. Paul wrote to a church. I will read more than he did, since context is important when you read books. So 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven 27 through 34 reads, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, We are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. So is this a cryptic message to the Ye Olden Church of Corinth to stop ODing on psychedelic wine and dying on accident? There's not really a reason to think that this is the case. So what is St. Paul's problem here? Well, if you scroll up just a little bit further and get just a little bit more context, you can find out. In verses 18 through 22, which Brian uh, leaves out, which are just before this, St. Paul writes, In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Brian leaves this part out, obviously. So what St. Paul is apparently criticizing in all these verses is this church's practice of everyone bringing their own food to eat as the Eucharist. Um, obviously today, as far as I know, people don't bring their own bread from home to church in like modern times. Um, but apparently that's what this church was doing. Everyone would show up with their own food. And this meant that poor people would go hungry and just not get anything. And then rich people were, you know, living it up, getting drunk at church probably, just having a grand old time, eating like lobster and stuff. So St. Paul is criticizing a specific named problem here. Not wheat mold, not some like cryptic message. He means what he said. And this is sort of part of a, a, a bigger thing, like... You can always argue that there is a like secret, hidden message. For instance, people will say that Islam is secretly uh, worshipping the moon uh, because like Allah kind of sounds like uh, the Arabic for like m- like moon or something like that. And they say, oh well, yes, the Quran doesn't say that they're worshiping the moon. It says that they're doing this and this specifically. But, of course, they are secretly worshipping the moon. So you could say, well, yes, St. Paul is criticizing a specific church practice here, but what he really means is they need to stop drinking LSD. (laughs) There's just no real reason to think that there's a sort of secret message. Brian also says that wine was everywhere in the ancient Christian world, and he uses this to support his theory. And it is true that wine was everywhere in the ancient Christian world, but this does not support his theory. (laughs) If anything, it goes against his theory. It is not suspicious that, like the Greeks, Christians used wine in their ceremonies because wine was everywhere. It was totally ubiquitous. It was safer to drink than water at the time because antioxidants in the additives and alcohol would kill uh, potentially dangerous microorganisms. He also points out that the world's oldest wine cellar was found in Galilee. And he, he says this in sort of conspiratorial tones. Uh, but I'm not sure what the argument is here. You know, Jesus was from Galilee. And then the, the oldest wine is in Galilee. So like, Jesus, he, he drank wine. Maybe he invented wine. Cause that's the oldest, and uh, like people put cinnamon in, in wine back then, so they, they they could have put LSD in too. Like they had the ability to put things in wine like for flavor. I, I don't know. This, this is just really not really much of an argument here. Other interesting biblical interpretations in this episode include graham hancock's assertion that he saw a snake once while he was on dmt and that this explains the garden of eden story in genesis in the bible this doesn't really make sense since in in the story of the garden of eden the snake is the, the bad guy because he's satan and he wants them to to take the the apple he wants them to do apples do drugs I thought drugs were actually good, though. So then why, why is God the bad guy in the story for wanting them to not do drugs? Because I thought Graham Hancock said you should do drugs. And then earlier they said that Jewish priests like did DMT and smoked weed. So shouldn't, shouldn't the good guy be telling Adam and Eve to do drugs? Not Satan, because Satan is the, the bad guy. Shouldn't it be the other way around? <laughs> it's, it's almost as if you shouldn't base your theories about religion and ancient cultures on drug-induced hallucinations. But this is not Graham Hancock's only wild idea. Rogan likes to present Graham Hancock as this sort of reasonable, chill old guy who, you know, he's really smart, but he, he's wrongfully persecuted by evil academics who are always uh, trying to discredit him. Uh, But Graham Hancock's big picture worldview is nearly as crazy as Alex Jones. In this episode he talks about how he believes all world governments and the Catholic Church are part of a conspiracy to stop people from taking psychedelic drugs. They all know that uh, psychedelic drugs are good, but they stop people from using them because they don't want them to think too much or whatever. (laughs) Funnily enough, Brian sort of contradicts this idea when he talks about how open and willing to help him the Catholic Church was with his book. (laughs) You know, how he talks about, yeah, you know, this priest showed me around, you know, gave me his opinions on the matter. I thought that was pretty funny. But Graham Hancock also believes that psychedelic drugs... Take you to a real alternate reality where you can communicate with real extra dimensional beings. Alex Jones also happens to believe this. Now, obviously, there's no evidence for this, uh, but he's clearly very invested in all of this stuff. These are all just real things he says in the episode. And it is truly baffling to me how someone who knows this much about psychedelic drugs knows. All the, you know, chemical stuff going on, how it causes hallucinations in your brain, how they make you see things, and so on. How he genuinely believes that there are real aliens and things talking to him truly baffles me. He also uses cave paintings of characters who are half animal as evidence that even cavemen were doing psychedelics. He goes so far as to say that it is the only possible explanation. He literally cannot fathom the idea that someone would just use their raw imagination to draw a centaur on a wall. This is beyond the realm of belief for him, he says. But interdimensional beings talking to you while you're high? Yeah, that's real. That's totally real, though, by the way. (laughs) Ultimately, though, Brian does most of the talking in this episode, not Graham Hancock. And most of what he says is pretty much pure theorizing. So here are some counter-theorizings of mine. Brian freely admits to having no evidence. He says there's no smoking gun. He also freely admits that all archaeologists and historians disagree with him. If you connect those dots, it's not hard to figure out why they disagree with him. And no, it's not because they're part of some massive conspiracy. If the early Christian Eucharist was psychedelic in nature, why are none of the mystical experiences in the New Testament associated with taking the Eucharist? Accounts of the Greek mystery make sense because they take the, the drink and then they see things. But that's simply not the case in the New Testament. Like the case of Ergot and the witch trials, why are the mystic experiences in the New Testament not similar to those experienced by people taking psychedelics? The mystic experiences in the New Testament are not at all similar to, say, the things Rogan and Graham Hancock describe as seeing when they are high. People have religious experiences today without psychedelics, so why should we try to attribute all religious experiences of people from the past to psychedelics? Why? That really cuts at sort of the underlying uh, theory of these people. Now, throughout the podcast, Rogan frequently asks where would we be if you didn't write this book to Brian? Well, we would have slightly less pseudo-history in the world to deal with uh, if he had never written this book. Towards the very end of the episode, when they're sort of signing off, Brian says that you don't need to know anything about history or uh, religion or, you know, chemistry or whatever other subjects to read his book. And this is basically the problem right here with this sort of, you know, pop history, pop research. People will read this with no context and no background. And so they will be easily convinced. They'll believe it. That's how you get things like the Da Vinci Code being taken seriously. As he admits himself, no actual historians, archaeologists, etc. are convinced by him. But Joe Rogan is. So now there's going to be loads of people who listen to this episode. Probably they won't even buy the book. And then they'll think that it's real. And it's not that they're dumb or they're easily fooled. It's simply that they don't have uh, any sort of context for the things that he's saying. They don't have any other knowledge that could contradict it. And he seems authoritative. You know, he talks about how he did all this research, you know, oh, I did research for 12 years. It's sort of like the movie Boyhood, you know, if it took 12 years, it's got to be good. So they, so they will think that he's right. Also, on a side note here, almost none of the things he says in this episode are original to him. Basically, everything he says had already been thought of and theorized about. So I don't know what took him 12 years exactly. I think he just wanted to travel around Europe. Anyway, those are all my notes uh, for this episode. That's everything I have to say about it. Um, but before I end the episode, I do have an announcement. Well, sort of an announcement. It is that time in the lifespan of a podcast where I am going to do a Q&A episode to celebrate the one-year anniversary of Investigate Joe Rogan, which is coming up here in just a little bit. So if you have any questions about investigate Joe Rogan, about anything, you can email me them, you can message them to me on Twitter, you can send them by Telegram, Pigeon, you can take DMT and like beam them to me through like astral projection. However you want to do it, there's gonna be a QA episode. And your question could be in that episode. But until then, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this, and I will see you next episode.